0: your Bibles, please, to the book of Judges, chapter number eight. Judges, chapter number eight. As I was sitting there and thinking about where we've been so far in this study, I I happened to think back to uh, several occasions that I visited the museum at the Wilson Creek Battlefield in, outside of Springfield, Missouri, and also the battlefield at Antietam. And uh, looking at the displays of the battle, just taking you from the initial encounter and going from stage one to stage two and so on and so forth. And uh, thinking about that uh, sort of fits in the picture of what we see here by way of Gideon. We've been going through this series called Gideon's Gallery. And and my first thought was like you're walking in a museum or something and you're just looking at one scene and then you go to another. And uh, we started out by talking about uh, Gideon's fearfulness. And naturally we, you know, we we remember the situation that he was in and he's not an experienced person. Uh, leader of men. He's not trained in the weapons of war or anything that we know of, but uh, uh, here he is out there with his people suffering year after year, seven years in a row, of being beaten down and robbed of all of their goods. And uh, the the last thing that that he expected was for the God of heaven to tap him on the shoulder and say, uh, hey, i got a job for you to do, thou mighty man of valor I, I mean it must have seemed like mockery to him, and I kind of identify with that when God called me to preach. I thought, boy, if God ever made a mistake, this is it <laughs> He doesn't know what he's getting himself into, uh, but uh, but God often does the unexpected, and that 's where we started, gideon being in In that situation, his fearful call. And then we talked about his first assignment and how important first assignments really are. You know, it's not a matter of whether we excel in the sense of surpassing somebody else. It's not a matter of us living up to someone else's expectations. It's a matter of us being well prepared and doing our dead level best. I remember the very first sermon that I preached. It happened to be on the subject of prayer. And uh, there's one thing about it, as bad as it was for everybody else, uh, you know, I could honestly say I did the best that I could at that time in my life. That's all God ever expects from any of us at any time in our life, is to do the very best that we can. Well, in the first assignment, we... We see Gideon doing well. But then we go to the next scene in the story, and we see his faithlessness. Uh, you know, it's, it's almost as though reality hit him, and it's like, you know, what have I gotten myself into, or what's God got me into? And all of a sudden, he's not so sure about a lot of things, and his faith is lacking, and consequently he made a request of God that he would give him some kind of a sign in order to uh, assure him that this was the real deal. Well, we move on from his faithlessness to the next scene has to do with his faith. You know, that's kind of the way it is with you and I. We Just about the time we think we've got a lot of faith, we're put to the test and we find we didn't have near as much as we thought we did. But then we turn around, and all of a sudden we face some situation that maybe makes us desperate or or frightens us. And, and, And all of a sudden we begin to realize, I've got more faith than I thought I had. And so that's the way it was with Gideon. Well, last week we talked about Gideon's fight. And by the way, that's what the Christian life is all about. It's a conflict. We're in a spiritual warfare, and we've got to expect that. And uh, so we see that Gideon was successful uh, in, in in the fight. Now this week we come to chapter eight, and uh, this scene has to do with Gideon's friction, the friction among the brethren. And, you know, it's been said that nothing ever comes easy, and boy, that was true with Gideon. Just when it seemed that everything was well in hand, all of a sudden trouble comes from an unexpected source. And and I've noticed that's the way it usually is. You know, as a pastor, you always anticipate that there might be a problem of some sort, and... uh, a lot of times, just to be perfectly honest, you've got a gut feeling that if it does, it'll probably be, oh, so and so. You know, you've already got them pegged, you've already got them figured out, and you're thinking to yourself, if anybody gives us a problem over this, it's going to be so and so. And then lo and behold, some unexpected source, uh, becomes the, becomes the focal point of the, of the dissension in the church. So, it can happen, but as you're going to see in just a little bit, Jealousy and fear entered into this picture to the point that it caused his own people to create dissension among themselves. Now, there's infighting. And and, and by the way, if Satan cannot destroy us from without... He seeks to destroy us from within. I, I think the perfect example of that is there in Acts chapter number six. And you'll remember the church was prospering greatly. I mean, it was amazing the things that God was doing. You, you think about the day of Pentecost, just that one day, all of those, all of those people being saved and then they're going from house to house and witnessing and preaching the word and people are being saved and added to the church and up jumps the devil. All of a sudden there's bickering among the people over some of the widows not getting the, you know, what they thought was the proper care. And so now you've got dissension and strife uh, within the church body, and that is deadly. It's deadly. So All of this, and and, and I'm saying all of this to let you know that in this ancient story that we're talking about concerning Gideon, there is a practical application to what you and I are going through today. And that's exactly what you know the Lord tells us in Romans 15 and verse number 4, that the things that were written aforetime were written for what? For our learning, our admonition that we through the comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And so God expects us to learn something from this. So hopefully we will. Now, there's about four things I want you to look at tonight. It begins here in this chapter with the resentment of the Ephraimites. Verse number 1, And the men of Ephraim said unto him, Why hast thou served us thus, that thou callest us not, when thou wentest to fight with the Midianites? And they did chide him uh, uh, with, with him sharply." And he said unto them, What have I done now in comparison of you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God hath delivered into your hands the prince of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb, Z- 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 And what was I able to do in comparison of you? And then their anger was abated toward him when he had said that. Boy, there is so much here in these verses. I want you to notice, and we mentioned this last week, that the Ephraimites had succeeded in controlling the fords along the waterway. Now, remember... Whenever the enemy fled, they knew they were going to cross the river, so the idea was, we'll beat them to the ford, the shallow water places, you know, where, where we know that's where they've got to cross, and we'll get there before they do, and, you know, consequently, we can, we can destroy the enemy. And so, they got there and was able to defend the fords, but the problem was, they wanted to play a bigger role in the battle that that wasn't enough for them, and that 's what they're griping about here you know why, why didn't you let us be one of the attackers, or you know whatever i don 't know exactly what they wanted, but they wanted they wanted a more prominent part in the situation when they ought have been rejoicing over the victory they're jealous because they didn't you know they didn't get to do what they wanted to do and here they are complaining to, to Gideon about it. Now, this becomes a real test of, of, of Gideon's character here. How's he going to handle this? I mean, they're acting like little spoiled children. And, and I want you to notice that, and this shows how wise Gideon was, instead of getting involved in an emotional debate, a warfare with his own people, Uh, He kept his eyes on the goal because he knew there are some fights not worth fighting. And that's why I say all the time, a dog can whip a skunk any time, but the smell ain't worth the fight. And that's the way it is. Look, you don't have to accept every challenge that comes your way. You don't have to do that. Just because somebody throws something at you, you don't have to pick it up and throw it back. You can stop it dead in its tracks right where you are. And Gideon could have got in a verbal sparring match with these people. He could have rebuked them. He could have said, you're acting like a bunch of spoiled babies and so on and so forth. But but notice he didn't do that because he knew there would be no winners had he done that. And he also knew that delay... And that, that's what would have happened. There would have been a delay in the action, and that would have enabled the enemy to uh, to escape completely. And so he realized this, and he, he used his wisdom to solve the problem. Notice what he did. Instead of rebuking them, which they deserved, he complimented them. Did you notice what he said there? He said, you know, verse 2, What have I done now in comparison of you? He's downplaying his accomplishments and and bragging on them. Now, to really understand this and to see what's going on, you need to realize that the Ephraimites were a proud people. Joshua had been of their tribe. And so they've got, you know, that tribal pride right there. Joshua was one of us. The tabernacle was located in one of their cities in Shiloh. And you go all the way back to when Ephraim was the was the honored son over Manasseh. And so they've got all of this tribal importance, and that's why they feel they've been shunned as far as the way that they were used. And so you can understand how prideful they might have become, and that's the thing that led to their complaint. If you want a practical application... Here it is. I've seen a number of different churches that, that you know, were dominated by a particular family. And, and, and those families, or that family in whatever particular church it might be, they had a sense of ownership in that church, and, and, and they felt like it was their job to control the church. And you just can't imagine the problems that's been caused by that, that very thing, that the family's going to control it. I mean, whenever something's going to come up for a vote, boy, they get their heads together and everybody knows exactly what's going on and the pressure is on, and I've seen churches literally destroyed. Now, let, let me say this, in, in defense in defense of a lot of those small country churches, where you know, let's say sixty percent of the of the congregation uh, is is all due to one family. You know that can be a wonderful thing. Uh, I don't think we ought to complain about that. I've heard people say, "Well, you know, such, such church is all so and so's family." There. Well, thank God for that. I, you know, I wish all of my family was here. You might be wishing they didn't have so many, but uh, I, I wish I had all of my family here. And, and and I think most of you feel the same way. That's what we would like. But I don't. It doesn't make any difference. We are never the prominent family or the prominent people in the sense that you know that we ought to feel like that we have the right to run the Lord's church. That's what's going on way back here with these people. They're mad because they're not in that prominent position. Let me tell you, jealousy always hinders God's work. Uh, I, I think about the many examples in the Bible. We think about Joseph, for example, when his brothers sold him into slavery. What was that all about? Jealousy. That's exactly what it was about. You go back and read the story, and, you know, they're jealous of Joseph, and so they sold him into slavery. I think about King Saul and his hatred of David. David, in reality, was the best friend that Saul and Israel could possibly have. And, and, and certainly David was not out to take his job. David was just doing his job. And, and all of a sudden... the. All of the girls are dancing in the street, you know, and they're, they're singing. They've made up a little chorus. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands, you know, and boy, all of the praise is going to David, and all of a sudden, that gets the hackles up on, you know, on Saul's neck, and so all of a sudden now he wants to kill David. He wants to get rid of him. He, in his pride, he feels that David is a threat to uh, To him, when in reality, he was his best friend, and we see that again we see it in the elder brother, remember the prodigal son whenever he comes back, and everybody 's rejoicing and, and you know we think so many, so much of the time we think about that prodigal son as being the really awful person in the story, and, and by the way, he, he, it was awful what he did, but no more uh, awful than than the elder son who was self-righteous and complaining. You know, they're throwing a big party to welcome the prodigal back. And he's sitting there pouting. He's not going in. I'm not going to eat. I don't want anything to do with it. And, and it's all because of jealousy. Jealousy will tear a marriage apart. It'll tear a church apart. It'll absolutely ruin your testimony. We don't need to try to promote ourselves. We simply need to let God do what He does. And by the way, the way up is down. The way up is down. The Lord exalts those that humble themselves. So Gideon showed great wisdom in all of this, realizing the kind of people that he was dealing with, and instead of getting in this sparring uh, battle with them, he just says, hey, you, you know, what I did is nothing in comparison to what you're doing or what you've done. Now, verse number 4 down through verse 9 after the resentment of the Ephraimites, we see the rejection, the rejection by Sukkoth and, and Peniel. And notice what, what happens. And Gideon came to Jordan and passed over. He and the 300 men that were with him, 300, right? I mean, they haven't lost a man. 300 men that were with him. And I love this, I love this phrase. I've colored it in bright yellow in my Bible, and it means so much. Faint yet pursuing them. Faint. I mean, they're weak, they're weary, you know, they're faint, but they're still pursuing them. And he said unto the men of Succoth, Give, I pray you, loaves of bread unto the people that follow me, for they be faint, and I am pursuing after Zeba and after Zal- Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And the princes of Succoth said... Are the hands of Zeba and, and Malmuna now in thine hand? In other words, do you have them in custody? Uh, that we should give bread unto thine army? And Gideon uh, said, Therefore, when the Lord hath delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into mine hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And he went up thence to Peniel, and spake unto them likewise. And the men of Peniel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered him. And he spake also unto the men of Peniel, saying, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now, I want you to notice that no sooner was one problem solved than, than here comes another one. That's kind of the way life is. You know, you just, you get over one mountain and there's another mountain to climb. You just make it through one problem and there's another problem to face. And that's just life. Life's not easy for anyone. And so they just get through this squabble amongst themselves and, and uh, you know, the the Ephraimites. And, and now... The soldiers naturally being tired, weary from their travel. And so he comes to Sukkoth and Peniel these cities and made a request for bread. I mean, that's a simple request. By the way, these are his own people. I mean, these are not foreigners. These are not enemies. Uh, these, are, these are people that should be assisting, people that should be helping. And he's asking for bread. He didn't ask them for gold, just Bread. I mean, just plain ordinary. He didn't even ask him for beef. You know, if it'd been me, I'd said, "Where's the beef? I, you know, I, I want some beef or pork chops or I, I want I want something with meat." You know, but they just said bread. That, that's all we want, and um, and they refused. Now, part of it, part of it had to do with this. They were afraid. That's why they made the made the statement, said, well, do, do you have those, those men of Midian, do you have them in your custody? Are they in your possession? You see, they are scared to death. If we help you and they find out about it, they're going to end up hurting us. And so although they were uh, Israelite cities, they're refusing, because of fear, to help Gideon and his army. Now, when you think about that, It could have been disastrous. It's one thing if my neighbor says something or does something to inflict pain on me. It's another thing when it's a close friend or a church member. It hurts all the more. The closer you are to a person, the greater the degree of hurt is whenever they do something against you. And few things could be more discouraging than this, to have your very own people turn their back on you in a time of need. And yet it says what? Yet pursuing. He was keeping on. And notice what he did. As he does, he leaves with a message, and the message is, this is going to come back to haunt you because I'm coming back. As soon as I defeat the enemy, I'm gonna be back. And uh, there's a payday coming someday. Now, if we're gonna be successful, we've gotta press on toward the goal in face of difficulties and in face of disappointments. And if, if we just serve God only when circumstances are favorable, we'll, we'll never get anything done. We've got to be willing to serve him during the tough times of life, and that is exactly that's exactly what Gideon was doing. And so, whenever you read on now, verse number ten, because we see something else is about to happen, and that's the rulers of Midian are captured, and that's what that's what the the people there in Succoth and the other place that's what they were asking about. Uh, now, verse ten. Now, Ziba and Zalmunna were in Cachor K- and their host with them, about 15,000 men. You know, that's shocking, 15,000. Remember, Gideon's just got 300. 15,000, all that were left of the host of the children of the east, for there fell 120,000 men that drew sword 120,000 uh, you know that had already fallen and Gideon went up by the way of them that dwelt in the tents on the east of Nobah and and Jogbeha however Jog uh, Jogbeha and smote the host. Now <laughs> don't miss the story because of my silly pronunciation of that. Notice he smote the host for the host was secure. And Zebna and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued after them, and took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and discomfited all of the host. Now remember, he's outnumbered 15,000 to 300, and finally, notice, he, he caught up with the enemy, he subdued the enemy in a surprise attack, and now he has captured these two kings. And here's the important thing. He kept them alive. You know, he could have killed them, but he didn't. He kept them alive. And 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 I think the reason is because he knows he's going back to Sukkoth and Penuel, and, and he wants to give them evidence that we've been victorious. I think that's what that's all about. Otherwise, he would just cut their heads off. Why mess with them? They're just going to be dead weight. They're not going to be any help. But he wants to be able to go back there... And remember, these are the two guys they've been worried about. They said, do you have them in your custody? You know, do you have them locked up? Do we have anything? Well, you know, we're not going to help you if we're going to get in trouble with those guys. They're bad dudes, you know. uh, So if you don't have them in custody, you're not going to get any bread from us. So he knows he's about to go back to those cities, back to those people, and show them the evidence, we got the victory without your help. 300 against 15,000, we got the victory. And notice what happens. Here's the return beginning in verse 13. And Gideon the son of Joash returned from battle before the sun was up, and caught a young man of the men of Sukoth and inquired of him, and he described unto him the princes of Sukkoth and the elders thereof, even threescore and seventeen men. And he came unto the men of Sukkoth and, and, and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, with whom ye did upbraid me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Malmunna now in, in thine hand, that we should give bread unto thy men that are weary? And he took the elders of the city, and thorns of the wilderness and briars, do you remember what he said earlier? And he took the men and the thorns of the wilderness with briars, and with them he taught the, <laughs> he taught the men of Succoth. Uh, he beat the daylights out of them. Uh, but wait, it gets worse, and now, now he's, he's doing exactly what he warned them he was going to do. And he beat down the tire of Penuel, and he slew the men of the city. In other words, these people are being punished because they refuse to get involved. Now, don't you misunderstand this. This is not to say that we ought to go out and take the same action against those who refuse to help us. That's not the point of the story. Uh, you know, that doesn't give us a right. I'll, I've often talked about Nehemiah whenever he got angry with those guys and pulled the, plucked the beard from their face, you know, and sometimes you might feel like that's what you'd like to do, but unless you get license from the Lord, you're going to end up getting in trouble. And we've got to remember God is conducting this, and I've got to believe with all of my heart that Gideon is not acting on his own. And I think God wants us to get the, the the lesson here, and that is that sin is going to be punished. And, and remember when Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. Well, this is a good illustration of that fact. For them to say that, you know, we're going to remain neutral. I know you guys are hungry. I know you've been fighting. I know that you need bread. I understand that. But we're not going to run the risk of getting hurt ourselves. We're just going to stay in the shadows. Now you go on and do your thing, you know, and and uh, and we'll stay here. And we can't listen. We can't be neutral. We are either for the Lord or we are against the Lord. And, and, and all, although our failure in providing the help that is needed, although our failure might not result in this kind of a thrashing, and 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 even in our death, you, you mark it down it matters in eternity because God's keeping records and and God's people are expected to support God's work that's one reason whenever we have these fundraisers and things like that we don't put a price on things we you know we can make a suggestion that you know that uh, you know it took $10 to you know to get this and you know that would help us to recover our loss but but we're not in the selling business and we don't ever want to get in the selling business and raising money by selling stuff uh God's church is to be supported by his people and that's always been God's plan and 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 we can look we can support God's work in numerous ways it's not Just about being a pastor or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or an Awana commander or director or Sunday school teacher or any of those things, there are numerous ways in which we can help. And, uh, you know, whether it's financial, a lot of people can't do a lot of other things, but they can offer financial help. Like The person I mentioned a while ago that uh, Brother Ron was telling me about wanted to be a blessing, wanted to be a help to someone. And so they... Had some resources, and they made it available to help some you know some people can do that. there are other people that maybe that couldn't do that and and uh and they can help in other ways, but there's always something for everyone to do. You probably remember me telling the story about pastoring there in Springfield, Missouri, the home of Baptist Bible College. We naturally had a lot of young preachers that went to college there, and uh, and and, and all of them, you know, were looking for churches, and the main thing they were looking for was a position. And, and I'll never forget that one fella <laughs> telling me. And we'd gone through, uh, you know, a long discussion about what was available and what have you. I said, man, there's nothing available. If God puts you here, God will use you in some way. He said, you don't understand. You don't understand. i got to have a title of some kind if I'm going to join the church. All these other guys, they're a song leader or a teacher or their assistant there. He said, I don't care if you make me assistant janitor or anything, you know. I said, the only thing I'm going to tell you, if God puts you here, God will open up a door. For you to serve Him. Listen, folks. If we need a title, or we need a position, or we need an office, then we have the wrong attitude. It's not about that. It's about us making ourselves useful to the work of God. One of the one of the greatest things, and, and I, I certainly, I, I'm a I'm a fan of the Apostle Paul. I, that he just amazes me. And uh, I can't—I just can't hardly imagine uh, someone being a greater man than Paul was. And one of the things that reveals his greatness is his attitude toward those that helped him. And keep this in mind: the Holy Spirit is the one that is directing Paul as he writes these letters. And so God's behind this. In other words, not just Paul's idea. But, but but God is using a man who has a heart to do this. So we've got to give Paul some credit and understand that this is the attitude God expects us to have. And that's that he over and over and over again in those letters mentions the names of people that helped him. People we never heard of any other way. We don't know anything about them. We don't know where they came from. We don't know what they did or anything. All we, know, all we have is their name. And all we know is they helped. And that so impressed the Apostle Paul when he wrote, let's say, the book of Romans. He wanted us to know about those people. And, and you and I ought to feel that way about those that are workers in the Lord's church uh, not only should we make ourselves available and be a helper, but we ought to have great respect for those that are helping because it's not all about, it's, look, it, it's not all about the preachers. It's not all about the choir. It's not all about, you know, the talent of a select few. It, it's, it's the corporate effort of the entire body. And we don't have one single member that is unimportant. Now we've got some members that that you know are not willing to do anything. That's true in, in every church. Uh, but the, the the only thing that makes them unimportant is their their attitude of not wanting to do anything. So none of none of our members are unimportant unless they choose to be, and they're important because. Each and every member has some way that they can be used in the work of the Lord. Uh, everybody can't be a Gideon, you know. Uh, everybody can't be a Joshua. And I, I, I think about Moses, you know, and uh, think about what he went through and the trials and, and how he stuck with it, but, but, but even he needed someone to hold his hands up. You see, we all need help sometime or another. And, and, and an important part of this, of this victory uh, that we're reading about has to do with those men that were willing to help. And don't forget the curse that fell upon those who refuse to help. We don't have to go around trying to punish people because they won't help. God will take care of that. God will take care of that. And uh, <laughs> and that ought to frighten some folks when you stop and think about it. God will take care of it. Well, let's all stand. I hope tonight is, that maybe the Lord has reminded us that, and I've often said, you know, the world's not going to destroy Lakeway Baptist Church. It can't. Hollywood, as rotten as it is, Hollywood's not going to destroy us. All of the immorality that we see around us, that's not going to destroy us. And the government can make all of the rules and regulations it wants trying to choke us down, but it cannot destroy us. The only, the only way we'll ever be destroyed is if we self-destruct. And so if we keep our act together, so to speak, and just depend on the Lord, keep our house in order... God will take care of all of the rest. Let's just bow our heads and pray. We're not even going.